that work? You can hear. Good. You have to get a little bit used to the sticking to you, but this will be better than... Uh, Bad traffic this morning. Yeah, nice to see you. I have missed you. Are you well? Well enough? <laughs> I've missed you. I've been thinking about you. Hmm? No, I think I can. Yeah. What did we have the last time? Yeah, how about put it over here? Glad to see so many people that I haven't seen in a while, and I'm glad to see you if I haven't seen you before. My name is Sylvia. What? Who are you if I haven't met you before? Who has not been here before? What's your name? Jane. And where do you live? Uh-huh. How come you came today? I'm glad to have you here. Did you come the back way or the front way? The back way. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Cows are all having babies out there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I met somebody at, uh, where was it? It was the most amazing thing. It was at a, uh, a, 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 um, a fundraising culinary, what do you call it? Uh, proper, anyway. Was a culinary arts demonstration at at Homeward Bound, and so there's somebody sitting next to you, which, by the way, are fabulous. They, whenever you hear about it, you should sign up right that second because they fill. The woman sat sitting next to me. You never know. You say, you know, how long have you lived in the county? Well, recently, but I used to live in Montana, and my family lives there now. And this is the busy season of the year for them. And they're, uh, they're, they raise cows, and the cows are all having babies at this time of the year. And uh, she said it's different now because uh, now they have those kind of surveillance cameras in with the cows. She said, you know, when I was younger, we used to sleep in there with the cows on piled up hay because there's one having a baby all the time and you had to keep an eye on them. So now my sister can stay indoors all night and be watching, monitoring on these. You know when you go to a hospital and you go to the nurse's station and they have little cameras where you can see in all the rooms? Well, her sister stays in their home and watches the cows out in the barn and they see a cow having a problem, they run out. But I thought, wow, it's a, such a strange world now. It's wonderful. <laughs> They run out. They can call on a, on a. They can call the vet from wherever she or he is. 
see wow, there's a whole there's a whole world of information about how to take care of animal husbandry that I don't know anything about. I guess that was on my mind because Laura just told me that should we be interrupted by any uh, turkeys banging on the door? It's a turkey mating season, and they're very distraught. They're, they're very overwrought, rather. And uh, so they attack any turkey that they see. And I think when they see themselves in the, in the window of the door, it probably makes a good Dharma story, you know, that we, f we fight with ourselves and we don't know it. But they see, they, this is the season. If, you, if you're on retreat during this season, people spend a lot of time watching them because they have really amazing behavior. The, the men are attacking each other all the time and the women are standing by, but looking so disinterested. They're just, you know, picking away at the, at the, at the seeds that they're picking. And the men are fighting. I guess it was last year that I went by and I was sure, as I went by, this is to tell you how the mind makes up stories. All I really know, because I want, what I want to talk about today, is how we make up stories depending on our own mindset, sometimes that aren't there. Walking along and hear the men turkeys fighting, and here's a woman turkey pecking away. And uh, my story is that she turns her head and she looks at me, and she looks at me, and it's clear that what she's saying is, can you believe these guys? Look how they're carrying on. Not only this, when they finish with this carrying on, could you take me home with you, please? So that's when I look at the turkey, and I think, that's turkey looked at me, and that's what she said. Really, the only thing that happened is the turkey turned its head. That's all. I don't know that the turkey looked at me particularly. I certainly don't know what the turkey was thinking. But, you know, the turkey looked at me. We personalized things. And she said to me, take me home. Look at these guys. So anyway, if it happens, we'll, we'll know about that. So I'm glad that you're here today. <laughs> Who else is here for the first time? What's your name? Terry. Terry. Where do you live, Terry? Boston. Wow. You have very bad weather back there now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it over? Is it past? Are they digging out? Wow. But now it's all icy. Oh. I'm glad you're here. Who else has not been here? What's your name? Did you come together? No. You don't know each other? No. Oh, well. I'm glad you're here. Boston is a big place. <laughs> I've never met her. <laughs> Everybody else has been oh, there. You go. For a while. I'm glad. I hope you come back again. Everybody? Yeah. In San Francisco. Santa Rosa. Okay.
pretty wet up there these last couple of weeks. But now the rivers are down. It, oh, good, good, good. What happened with the Orville Dam? Did anybody see the... Yeah, is it all right? Yeah. Everybody who is new has introduced themselves. What we do normally after everybody introduces themselves is we take a minute and we say hello to the people next to us, just to, particularly for the people who are just introducing. But also for us, people come week after week and they don't notice each other or say anything. One of the reasons that I uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that I always say let's all say hello to each other is if I didn't say it, somebody would remind me that uh, mostly Ace would remind me that I hadn't said it. But he's right. I, it's really a nice thing to say hello to the other people in a room. You feel connected a little bit to them. I had really an extended conversation with a friend of mine on the telephone this morning uh, about. Uh, we were noticing the the fact that uh, the both of us have a reputation in our family for talking to anything that moves practically, <laughs> so that uh, so that it, it, you don't just go through the supermarket clerk or you, you know, there's so many times in a day that you can say hello to somebody that they could say back something hello and then you say how are you and they say well actually and they tell you something about themselves. You know, actually, my daughter had twins last night. Or actually, uh, I'm uh, I'm really um, 
worried about politics these days. How about you? Actually, something or other, it doesn't matter what you say. But then there's a real person connected to it. Hello, it's hello, you know, that we just do that. But there's something real about that. That's what they're thinking about. And all of a sudden, you have a chance to say something back to them and connect about the real. You can say, so am I, or... uh, you know, I'm having a lot of faith in the fact that people are talking to each other or something. But every time I think we look at people and we say something to them, and they say something back. We exchange something of vitality with each other and it wakes you up. We were talking about that it's good to do something like that just before you meditate because you feel a little bit woken up. You don't feel like just a person somehow rattling around in the universe by themselves with their thoughts. I'm in this universe with other people. And uh, so I, I also, I, t- I told her that sometimes uh, in this class, we think about, before we're about to sit together, I say, I'll say to people, think about a kindness that somebody did to you yesterday or in the last 24 hours. Can you think of something? Somebody hold the door for you. Tell me something someone did in the last... <laughs> See what happened is you just picked up everybody's mood by 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 saying something that you could count on that they'd laugh at. <laughs> Not even saying anything about politics, just about that a six-year-old says a thing like that. That's very clever. What else is a kindness that somebody did? Wow. Well, everybody here had a, I had my tire blew out. Somebody came and picked up my kids. Somebody else came and fixed the tire. What happened? Yes, some kindness in the last 24 hours. Yeah. Oh, doesn't matter. No, doesn't matter. Wow, one more. Ed. Now we'll sit. I think that you know that you pre- you prepare the soil. You you you. Uh... Well, my friend, the question to ask is, what picks up my heart these days? We're very ready all the time to say about what's worrying us. I think because we're wired that way, you know. We when someone says, "How are you?" 
we just don't usually start with what's working. We start with, well, here, there. <laughs> Maybe that's just old people, but... <laughs> I think we're much more liable to share what's troubling us, because we're always looking to address it, than what's all right with us and what's keeping us going. So now I think we're in a good place to sit. I'd like to suggest that... Uh, that this for a meditation instruction, they're all the same. They're all sit easily and rest in this moment. The, uh, that's the short version. Uh, the slightly longer version is let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and then stay that way. I love that. That's my friend Ajahn Amaro. Let the mind and body assume its natural peace and ease and just stay that way. Like you could just do it. He goes on to say, if anything arises to disturb the peace and ease, then notice it. Otherwise, just sit with peace and ease. The idea that our very nature is peace and ease under all the activity and thoughts and worries and pulls and dreams and preoccupations... A certain way that is the same instruction as let your attention be just with the breath coming and going. So that certainly sounds different, but if we're just with the breath coming and going, and just with the body moving as it accommodates the breath, that instruction, by the way, from the Buddha, is be with the breath in the body, because the body moves to accommodate the breath in and out. That's the same as let the mind assume its natural peace and ease. Let the body, at its barest minimum, breathe in and out. You don't have to remember to do that. It just does it. And when we sit with peace and ease, it's not like nothing happens. There are different feelings in the body that you suddenly feel oh, my shoulder's a little tight, or my neck's a little stiff, or that's a lovely warm feeling in my hands, or different feelings come and go, and different thoughts come and go. What we report as our experience is really a cascade of thoughts and feelings, and aesthetic feelings in the body, and emotions coming and going. Thoughts. Bodily experiences. Smells and sounds. But the instruction, let the body assume its peace and ease, is to sit with peace and ease around shifting pressures and tensions and flutterings and feelings in the body and in the mind. There's a tension in the body or a tension in the mind that becomes uncomfortable, acts around it. I've been reading about recently 
has as his principal meditation instruction, relax. Body gets tense, feels tense. And a thought comes through, but it doesn't just float up and float out. It gets a hold on the mind and starts to unravel itself, make attention.
become our habit to uh, reserve these last minutes of sitting together. Special situation, somebody who you're thinking about particularly today. Um, I'm, act, I'm, I'm thinking today uh, a lot about uh, my friend Rachel in New York, who quite surprisingly and suddenly yesterday needed to. Pressing on something or other that was causing her to quite suddenly lose vision. and are thinking about it. And now that I've told you about it, then you're thinking about it. I'm glad to include you in that circle. What are you thinking about today?
at how reassuring it is to me. I feel that it's true for all of us, I'm sure, as it is for me. Difficulties and struggles that I even that I don't know the person who's speaking, and I don't know the people. I can feel pleased about that and think, oh, good. I'm that I saw in a And mindfulness retreat, and the sign said, "Life is so difficult. How can we be anything?" But I really didn't know anything at all about. I often feel maybe we should just sit quietly for a little while and not plunge on into what I'm thinking about and what you think about. Um, Week after week, I notice that there are things that happen to people ways that I haven't even thought to think about. One of the things that uh, happened to me this morning as I was listening to everybody share is uh, I, I, I have prepared to talk about three topics that are on my mind. Uh, yesterday and this morning and the day before when I was thinking about, okay, what will I, what will I 
talk about on Wednesday. I thought, well, I really want to talk about this because it's on my mind. And then I thought, well, I really want to talk about this, though. It's also on my mind, and it's left over from last time. And I also want to talk about this, which is also on my mind, left over from last time. See, I wrote myself a note. I said, so maybe you could introduce those three topics and say his three different topics, but that as I wrote that down, I thought that's not three different topics. It's three different ways to teach about, to talk about the one topic, which is life is bewildering. How are we going to do it? You know? How are we going to do it? Life is bewildering. But then something else happened to me today. I got converted in my thinking as we sat this half hour. Maybe I won't tell you about the conversion that happened tonight. I want to tell you the three categories. First of all, because I want to tell you, and second of all, I, I hope we talk about them. And then I said to myself, well, it doesn't matter if you've got three categories, because I, I'm here today, and uh, the next two weeks Donald will be here, but then the whole month of March I'll be here. So I thought, oh, okay, I can have a lot of categories. I can come back and I'll just tell you what I'm thinking about these days and we'll see how they develop and come out. I don't, I, I don't know how. I, well, one of them just changed as I sat here. So I'll tell you about it as we go through these categories. One of them is left over from last week. Maybe this will be the last. It's all the same category. One of them is left over from last week. Where I was talking about uh, what what are the um, what are the unconscious biases that shape how I see life. I remember I was I was reading to you from uh, Stephen Batchelor whose work I, you know, I know him personally. I haven't, I haven't been with him in, in years. I've seen him for years. And I'm in the middle of rereading all of his books because I find them now increasingly compelling. I always liked how he thought. But I've been reading them sequentially. He's been writing books for 30 years on Dharma. And uh, the evolution of his thought over the years has been very interesting for me to now reread. And I was reading to you last week from uh, Living with the Devil, a meditation on good and evil, which he wrote some time back. And he was talking about uh, the, the fact that uh, we all think through a certain set of uh, expectations or a certain set of understandings. He's talking about um, if uh, in a time, uh, there would have been a time 200 years ago where uh, at least um, in Western culture, people would say, say at a at a at a at a funeral service, uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. We all got used to that when we were growing up. I actually uh, this morning when I heard news about my friend Rachel that she was. Uh, awake from the anesthesia and, and that she seemed to be strong and that, uh, well, now we'll wait for the next news about pathology and all of that. 
but that she seemed to be doing well and her color was better and her responses were good. And I said to whoever it was that phoned me, I said, thank God. And, you know, that's a thank God is a thing that you say. I don't actually think there is a God. But it's very, it's spontaneous for me to say thank God because I grew up in a family that said that, that didn't believe there was a God either. But it's, a, it's one of those things. It's one of those things that conveys the idea, I think, isn't it? How many of you ever say thank God? Well, thank goodness, you know, because thank goodness means the same thing. It's just another way of not taking the name of God in vain. We say that because we grew up in a culture that said it because we're not so far from a time that actually believed that it was in the hands of some other force other than the natural forces of living in a world. God forbid, but... You know, we mean, I really hope this doesn't happen when we say that. So he says, you know, in the, there was a time pre-enlightenment that people said, uh, uh, you know, who knows, uh, God moves in mysterious ways and the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. And uh, since the enlightenment, people continue to use those expressions to mean I don't get it and things are inscrutable. The Buddha even said, karma is one of the six imponderables. He can't figure it out. It's a way of saying that life is precarious. It's one of the things that I'm, it's one of my other columns of things to talk about. The Orville Dam did not fail, apparently. Did they put enough stuff in that big hole or? Yeah, I saw yesterday uh, a video clip of, uh, um, um, I don't know the names of all those big machines, but shoveling up rocks and gravel and putting them into big bags, and I guess helicopters dropping them into that big sinkhole and hoping that they're there before the rains come. And it is so out of our hands because actually it looks a little overcast today, but I don't know the weather forecast. But the awareness that really this is out of our hands, you know. I, you know. I have an appointment to meet somebody for lunch. That's assuming that we don't have an earthquake between now and lunchtime, you know. That, uh, that uh, uh, it's all contingent. Everything is contingent. But uh, I, was, I was in a conversation with somebody, oh, I don't know, a couple of decades ago with some colleagues of mine, and somebody said... Well, I'm happy to be in uh, in a in a Buddhist lineage now because uh, I could never believe in a god that uh, that ruled over everything. So one of my other colleagues, also in the same lineage, said, "So you gave that up now to believe that karma is what happens to people." So, but on some level, we look to say, you know, it's out of my hands and. It's mysterious. It is out of our hands and mysterious. But once we say, well, I'm not corrupted by uh, an irrational thought, who knows? Here's a thing that I want to read to you. There's the myths of, he said, here he is saying in this particular book, um, Buddhism and Christianity share the view that a human life is fully intelligible only as part of an immense cosmic drama that transcends it. 
Both believe hidden powers to be at work, whether of God or karma make little difference. The powers that have flung us into this world to face the daunting task of redeeming ourselves for the remainder of eternity. It says the myths of modernity are so close at hand that it's hard to recognize them as myths. Just as those who lived in a pre-modern society did not regard their understanding of the world as mythological, we also fail to see the mythologies that underpin our sense of who we are and the kind of universe we inhabit. So, for instance, we believe, we, even if we say we believe what is empirically verifiable, does it not prevent it from functioning as a myth? No matter how true the modern scientific worldview may be, it plays a similar role in our lives today as a pre-scientific worldview played in the lives of pre-modern cultures. It also explains how human life is only fully intelligible as part of an intense, immense cosmic drama that transcends it. We believe the universe exploded out of nothing 15 billion years ago. We believe that humans evolved by random selection of genetic mutations from a more primitive life. We believe also in the existence of electrons in um, uh, of electrons and quarks. I can't find the thing that I wanted to read it. But I think also, never mind finding it in him, I was finding it in me. We also believe, and this I see more clear. I also find that I am skewed in my vision by certain beliefs I have about the nature of human choices. Uh, what if you suddenly found that the person next to you sitting in here voted differently from you? We do not have, as I have with people in my life, some feeling that those people missed the boat, that they didn't get it, that they were ignorant of information that I had, or worse, that their values are worse than mine are. You know, all the while that stands in my life next to the fact that I have cousins who voted differently from I do, from how I did, who always voted differently from how I did, who are upstanding, kind, generous, community-involved, decent people. And how that works. Somehow it does not corrupt my loving them. I, you know, I'm a little amazed by them, but it does not corrupt my loving them. I don't think they're bad people because I know they're not bad people. But that's having a hard time being in my mind with my sense of this choice means uninformed person. This choice means a person who doesn't care about other people. I don't think that's true. But I, I see how I can get hooked in that. They're bad or they're good. Or I also think about how I must be skewed in my thinking by Western psychology. You know? I, I think I'm, be, I'm beginning to see that in a curious way. Because I begin to I began my training as a psychotherapist in in the 1960s, very much in the post Freudian or not so post semi post Freudian uh, era of believing of really learning psychodynamic theory 
and the psychodynamic theory that was prevented that was presented as ego psychology by Anna Freud and the generation that came after her and it all made sense to me from my particular point of view and my particular life and my particular experience all makes sense to me actually but it made enough sense for me to be able to talk enough of that language for me to actually finish postgraduate training and get licenses to be a therapist and to work with a lot of people and all the while thinking a lot of these theories I don't see them actually working out and and there were a lot of beliefs that were part of the psychotherapeutic belief system in that time that people don't talk about anymore that have gotten outlived like Oedipus complexes and the roots of uh, homosexuality. It was a long time until people said this is not uh, this is not a mental illness. This is not an aberration. This is how it is. I think how much or or with these kinds of parents, it's no wonder that you turned out that way. But a lot of people had those kind of parents, and they didn't turn out that way that much of psychodynamic theory was made around work with people who didn't feel good in some way. People came and they said, I have this or that symptom. And then you find out that they lived through some horrendous times and they were abused by this person or that person or this person. You say, well, that makes a lot of sense. And then you meet other people who were abused by this person and that person and the other person who come out fine having a life and and then you begin to at least discover not that it doesn't matter if you've been abused by somebody else it always matters i think if you're abused by somebody else but it matters what genetics you have and it matters how much of a difference that makes to you when it happens it matters when it happens and how long it happens and the rest of your life was the conductor of the Chicago Symphony for his whole illustrious career, who was fleeing with his mother and I think in concentration camps, had a very, very difficult childhood. I may have gotten the person wrong, but I think it was he. And, And put it together. There's a book called Man is Wolf to Man. that up and tell me the name of it. Man who wrote it. Man who wrote it uh, was a Jew who, um, uh, uh, I don't know if he escaped from a concentration camp, but made it through it and, uh, and didn't die, and then was arrested by the Soviets and in a gulag for a period of time and had a most catastrophic kind of experience of terrible torture and survived it, and came to the United States and went back to medical school, which he had, I think, already done in Germany, and finished his training as a plastic surgeon, and then spent the rest of his life teaching plastic surgery to new resident physicians in plastic surgery. So people can have really terrible, terrible childhoods. So the whole thing is to say, it's not so clear as you'd think that A leads to B, 
A is a factor, but other things are a factor, and other things are a factor, and everything is really a factor. And your genetics are a factor. I, you know, I have seven grandchildren. They don't look like each other, they don't behave like each other, and the children of the same parents are strung differently. And you more or less know it the minute they come out. Not maybe the minute. <laughs> I've met a lot of people, though, who tell me I knew before it came out how it was going to be. <laughs> Anybody thinks they did that, that they knew before because it was kicking too much or carrying on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just that I, I tend to, I think about this now, because I used to think in those parameters it's like this, and then I think, well, it's not so much like this. Let me not know so much beforehand. And all the ideas that we had, at least I did growing up, that the children of divorced families, divorced parents, were sure to have a terrible time. That's not true. I mean, it doesn't seem to be true now. Anyway, I'm really, really thinking about what are the, the things that prevent my clear seeing. So here's the thing that I've been really thinking about most. One of the either uh, innate truths of life that I know, and it's not a myth, or it's a myth of uh, Western... Um, uh, uh, Western humanistic culture shaped by uh, the by Western religion is that people are inherently good. I love that myth. You know that somebody said to me this morning. I was talking to one of my friends this morning, and she said, "I don't know." She said, "Maybe if that's a myth, it's a good myth to have. Maybe you shouldn't question it." I often tell the story, and this is the last I'm going to tell about this because I'll tell you what's in the other two topics. But this is a very important one, I think. I've told it a lot, so some of you know it, but some of you don't. I'll tell it abbreviated. When I was leaving France four years ago from having been there with my husband, I left alone. I came back by myself because he came back the day before me, is he left with a, a nurse accompanying him because he was just uh, discharged from three weeks in an intensive care and post-intensive care. He was, he almost died from organ failure, from something that has since been fixed. He's a very healthy now, 85-year-old man. It's a miracle. Uh, but he almost died. And so it had been a very, very intense three weeks. And, I and the nurse came and collected him, and it was all those, making all those arrangements, and he flew home. And I closed our house, and I packed up, and um, a taxi took me to the train station, and I, I needed to take a train to another train to, uh, to a city where I would sleep over and then start to fly home. So it was a long trip. And I came around the corner in the train station to where I had to come up to the track, had my ticket, came around a corner pulling my suitcase, the regular suitcase, come around the corner and I find this three flights of stairs to get up there, 
to the track, and the escalator next to it is broken. So I come around the corner, and you know, you look at that, and you think, ah, and your heart sinks. And from behind me, somebody comes up behind me and just takes the suitcase out of my hand and says, Je vous aide, madame, I'll help you. And it's a big, tall guy, and he loops, lopes up the stairs like, you know, <laughs> it was like the, you know, the, the long arm of God reaching out or some ministering angel. You know, you really, ah, can't believe it. And he lopes up the stairs and puts it down at the top of the stairs and turns around and looks at me and points to where he put down the suitcase. And then he waves, and then he left. And I never even saw him on the train. So that was it. That was a whole interchange. Who remembers my telling that story four years ago? Say there. Because it's one of the things that really I think about all the time. I spent the whole trip home, and I was tired, and it had been a very hard, trying three weeks. I spent the whole trip home. I'd keep thinking about that guy carrying my things. Je vous aide, madame. And I came back, and I told that story. And I said, you know, what was magic is I didn't have to say I need help. That person came around the corner, looked at my situation, sized it up, took over, did what was to him the obvious thing to do. I get still a little bit goose flesh when I say. I come home and I say, you know, it just picked me up so much. I thought about it all the way home because I thought, you know, people are innately good. They see a situation, they take it over, they help. Okay. Two years go by, whatever went by, and uh, we went back to Europe, my husband and I, in order to sell our house and get everything in, in order. Because we decided, anyway, we decided we couldn't really live there anymore. But he's well at this point, and we get back there. And in the Paris train station, we needed to train, change trains, and we were waiting at a, at a door that's about to open, and there was just a lot of people on the train track. It was crowded, you know, like in a New York subway these days. And I've got a suitcase. I've got a purse that's one of those hang-in-the-front purses and a fairly big suitcase. Door opens, and a man from behind me says, Je vous aide, madame, picks up my suitcase and carries it into the train through the people in the train to right next to the other door where I'm have to, going to have to get off and guessing, you know, that this was just a local in-between train train and that the train going somewhere where someone has a suitcase would be on that door, puts it over here and disappears. And he put it right in front of another very tall man and we've all very pushed in there. So I'm standing there there's nothing to hold on to, so I have my hands on the suitcase. And I look up at the tall man, and he looks at me, and I think, boy, we're so crowded tight in here. It's really lovely. I have no sense of alarm or anything. Everybody's looking around. And the train starts, and a couple of seconds into this train journey, the man in front of me has a tremendous coughing fit. The coughing fit right in my face, cough, 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 cough. <laughs> and what you do when that happens, what do you do when that happens? You turn your face, and someone's coughing right in your face. You turn my face, just at that moment, the train lurches terribly because it goes around a bend. So I have to be holding my suitcase, it has rollers under it, 
lurches around. He's still coughing. I'm still looking away. We pull into the stop. The doors open. I'm going one more stop. He gets out. Doors close. Pushed in together. Get out the next stop. Look for my husband. Say, let's go over there and get something to eat. I look down. My purse, which has a zipper on the top, is unzipped. And my passport is gone, and my wallet is gone, and my money is gone, and everything is gone out of it. When I went two days later to Barcelona to replace my passport, find a big line of people replacing passports. And then it says, was your passport lost or stolen? And when you say stolen, it says, what ruse did they use? Did they use the coughing trick, the dropping a ring trick, the this trick, the that trick? <laughs> I suppose it's for tourist information, but um, I have a friend who had the, the ring trick happen there. There's also the juggling trick, so you get wiser after a while. But anyway, the, so I tell you that story, which took longer than I thought, because it's the, the, you know, the, the exact same, je vous aide, madame, I'll help you. And I had come home from that first experience say, people are really good spontaneously. People are really good is a generalization from one experience. There was a person in Perpignan who was really attentive to my need, but I don't know anything. Maybe he's one of two people in the world who would be that kind. Maybe he's one of 99% of people in the world. And the other, it's more likely, isn't it, that he's one of 99% of people in the world. What do you think? You think so? I'll give you one more way of thinking about it. So that's a good, it's a good story for me because the, 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 uh, what I think about is not a how, what a fool I was. I think, well, I should be a little bit more careful in my thinking when I generalize about what information do I have for generalizing about that. Or is that really what I'd like to be true? I'd like it to be true that 99% of the people in the world would do that. I think that. I used to say to people, when I was a child, it doesn't happen anymore because the situation doesn't happen anymore, I hope, where a woman has a baby in some circumstances where uh, her parents are not willing to care for her and her baby. And you see a person leaving a baby. This is the saddest thing. It was a, I mostly saw it in cartoons. But people leaving a baby on a doorstep. Remember the baby in the doorstep cartoon? I say to people, if you opened your front door in the morning and it was a baby in a doorstep, on the doorstep in a box, crying, what would you do? Well, what would you do? You pick it up. You pick it up. Then what? You hold it. You take care of it. You change it. You soothe it. You feed it. You call somebody who's an appropriate agent to call. You take care of it. You don't stop to say, this is a boy baby, not a girl. I want to do it. <laughs> or it's got this color skin or that kind of features or it's whatever. You pick it up and you take care of it. Most people would do that. I think most people would do that if they came upon a person lying in the street in a sudden difficulty. Although, on New York subways, I've seen people fall down and doors open and people just walk over them and go out. That's really 
So anytime you think, well, is that true? Everybody would. It's important for me to talk about this because one of the things that I've been teaching and teaching Dharma for so many years is that the fundamental nature of mind is that it's kind. That empathy is its capacity in human beings. Empathy is the capacity of human beings. And if we're not confused, then we respond to need. I used to say in 15 words, I can tell you the whole Dharma. When the mind is clear, oh, it's nine words. When the mind is clear, the eight words. When the mind is clear, <laughs> the heart is open. Nine words. You think that's true? Anybody thinks no? I was with a group of peers that are part of my my, uh, Dharma peer teaching group that I've been part of for 20-some years. And I I asked them the last time we were together, I said, do you think that's true? They said, yes. And they said, I said, well, how about people do terrible things? I think about the scams. Anybody here ever got a scam phone call? About, yeah. Did I tell you that my husband got one last week where, it, first of all, he's hard of hearing. He gets a phone call where the phoner is a man's voice, as his grandpa this is, and mentions the name of one of our grandchildren who's an adult. And he says, You know, you don't sound like him. He said, That's because I've been in a terrible accident. Say, wait a minute. And here he's hard of hearing, so he's not so sure that he's hearing right, and he doesn't hear right. And he said, but here, I can't talk. I've been in a terrible accident. Someone's going to talk to you. And someone starts to tell him something about, you need to help. We can't find anybody. He hasn't, he's been mugged or this or that or money. Anyway, of course, he hung up because, you know, and, and he called the his grandchild as an adult. He called his uh, brother, I think and said, is so-and-so all right? He said, yeah, it's fine, I just saw him. So this is apparently one of the scams that's now happening. They call grandparents that they happen to have found out the name of their grandchild, so they can call, say, hello, this is so-and-so, but you don't sound like so-and-so. That's because I've been beat up so badly in an accident. I think to myself, that is so terrible. Does that strike you as terrible? That is so terrible. Not only is it illegal and immoral what a terrible thing to do to old people you know they you know all and all people and bring up you know your grandchild for whom one would give one's life in a in a minute certainly you know that is a terrible thing so in the all people are kind they're not how about the woman who called me yesterday with a walking dog said i have good news for you you've just gotten a completely expense paid tour <laughs> to uh, Disney World and after you've spent three days there you can get on a boat and go to Cuba or wherever I was going to go I said no thank you but somebody is making a living making phone calls about things that aren't true so does that shake your confidence at all? I don't know what, what do you think? Anyway so that's column one I want to talk about what Oh, so wait, wait, one more thing to say. Back with my peer group, I said, do you think people are essentially good that the actual nature of mind is luminous and clear, what it says in the suttas? Do you think that? 
And uh, one of them said, yeah, I do. Uh, because when I am sitting, and I, this is why I, up to now, when I haven't had this kind of philosophical quandary, up to now, I've thought to myself, what happens for me, you tell me if this happens for you, what happens for me when I sit quietly and do some meditative technique for a while is, first of all, I think about the people I know who are in trouble, or I think about people I know who have some great joy happening, like grandchildren who bring valentines. Or, uh, friend said, you know, when I sit, he said, I, I, I think about people who are dear to me. He said, and I also think usually about um, when my mind settles down, I think about what I really made a mistake at, what I, what I have to correct, what I, you know, I'm, usually, I mean, these are sterling people that are not going out and doing terrible things. But if I was unkind to somebody or if I overlooked somebody or I forgot to pay back somebody on time or call somebody when I said I did, their mind makes a moral inventory. My mind does a moral inventory. Don't you find that yours does as you're sitting I forgot to call him back and I said I would. I forgot that I was going to call him and make a lunch date and I didn't. These are not terrible things that I did. But I really count on the fact that uh, I don't have to do a searching moral inventory. The moral inventory presents itself. And then I think that it makes sense to me to talk about the heart being inclined to the kindness because... Uh, uh, you feel good when you don't feel like you've done anything wrong. But then here's all these people who are doing things that they know are wrong all the time. Does their heart not feel bad? Anyway, I was very happy that my colleague said, yes, when I said, I really realize how much I love people and what I forgot to do. I really see that the nature of my own mind, when it's not confused and disoriented or bewildered, is kind and generous and moral, actually. You can, it's moral. So I said, that's good. Then after we finished that meeting, and between then and now, I've been thinking about, how about the people who were in charge of gulags? How about the people who are calling on the telephone? Maybe not everybody's mind is the same. Not everybody's upbringing is the same. Not everybody's genes are the same. Not everybody's culture is the same. What does being human mean about the nature of mind? I don't know. Did I confuse anybody with that? I did, because... So this is category one that I'm thinking about. When I told somebody on the phone this morning, sounds like I did a million... Th I did do a lot of things this morning. I get up very early, and I talk to all my East Coast connections early in the morning. So one of my friends to whom I said, I want to talk this morning about are people essentially good? And I, she said, they are. So, <laughs> so I said, well, maybe it's a myth. Maybe it's a Western civilization cultural myth that we all have a spark of the divine in this. I said, if it's a myth, it's a good myth to have. She said, don't question it too much. It's probably, you know, focusing your life in the right place. You're probably right. Anyway, think about that. Anybody have something they want to say about that right now? Yeah.
Andrew, yeah. Yeah. Anybody think that? Yeah? I don't know. I don't know. Some people think it has to do with the fact that some people have more resilient nervous systems. They don't fall apart quite so completely. Some people feel maybe they had different mothers. Um, there's, a, there's a scene in the beginning of Elie Wiesel's first novel, Night, which I recently was reading again, in which he recounts a march. He was interned in a concentration camp uh, when he was about 15 years old in a forced march that people had to do from one place to another, I don't remember. It was cold, and they were starving. And he said, in front of me was a father walking next to his son, and someone had dropped a crust of bread on the floor, and he saw it. He, he Wiesel, saw the crust of bread and his father walking with the son. And the father grabbed the crust of bread and ate it. And it was shocking to me when I read it the first time. And the, the, I knew it was there because I had read it before. But it was shocking to Wiesel that a father would do that sort of thing, have something to eat and not feed his child. He could maybe turn it around, maybe he's trying to keep himself alive, to keep his child alive, but... But who knows what you do in desperate circumstances? I think that, that that's maybe the thing to think about. What else do you think? Yeah. When you were talking about well, I was going to say 99%, that's a, that's a pretty big percent, but uh, that is, a, you know, that does leave off. I forgot your name. Jeff. Jeff, Jeff. Jeff thank you. Uh, it does leave, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. All right, so we'll leave it, you know, we, I don't know the answer. Who has another idea? Yeah. Man inherently good or inherently evil, and I said, neither one is just ignorant. Just what? Ignorant. Ignorant. And, and part of being awakened is that we are no longer ignorant, so we're able to do the right thing at the right time. Yeah. I forgot your name. Larry. Larry, thank you very much. You know, the Buddha would have said that, I think, also. Uh, that really it's ignorance, and which he saw as the opposite of wisdom. And uh, that if we had wisdom, we'd really, we would realize that everybody is hurting. And that, you know, sometimes I think we're, we all live, that this is kind of a, the world is, this is a dire kind of analogy. Maybe I shouldn't even, well, I did. That this is, a, this is like one big hospital waiting room, boarding lounge, for the next world. <laughs> we're walking around in all levels of health, and then we're not, you know, after that. And that if we realize that we are all, I can't remember exactly the rubric, but Stephen Batchelor has it in one of these. There are some people who have the, the practice of saying to themselves every day, 
I am human and therefore in the nature of, I, I am mortal and therefore I am going to die. I know that for sure. The only thing I don't know is when it's going to happen. And uh, that being so, what should I do today? And people get up every day and say that to themselves. And I've been thinking to myself very much, the story of my friend who, uh, who I talked to three days ago, my very good friend who had the surgery yesterday, I talked to her maybe Friday or Saturday, and she said, um, she said, I don't feel so well today. I'm, uh, uh, so I'm going to take the day off. I'm just lying in bed and talking to friends who call and reading. I said, are you sick? Do you have fever? No. This, that. He hurt you there, there, the symptoms. She said, I don't have any symptoms except one. I have a headache, and I, it's been coming on for a few days, and it's really not going away, so I don't know why. So I'm in bed for today. Talk, 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 including the talk that uh, she had just gotten back from teaching in Costa Rica, and she said, after the retreat was over, I went to the uh, seashore for a few days by myself, and I was living there in a cabin by myself by the seashore. And then she got home uh, a few days before we had talked, and she was scheduled to leave this Thursday to go on a trip with her two grandchildren and their two parents, her daughter and her son-in-law, all set up for a long time. And here she is in her bed. And then yesterday morning, my phone rings quite early in the morning. Before I had checked my email, and it's one of my East Coast friends telling me that this very friend in an hour is going to be having brain surgery for removing a, a significant tumor on, on her brain. And uh, it's, it's and so, in so many ways, like a, a teaching story. So the end of the story is she had the surgery, and it, the surgery was successful, and a lot, everything depends on what the tumor was and how she recovers and whether they got all of it. Another part of the story is that I then, while talking to this other friend that just called and said, did you hear what's happening with Rachel? She said, hurry up, look at your email. So I got up and I look at my email, and I also got the same email from New York that said, uh, at 11 o'clock, which is 8 o'clock our time, which was an hour or so away, uh, there's going to be a group sit thinking about Rachel and sending her good wishes and prayers. Want to be in on the group sit? You, uh, you can click on this link. So you think, I'm thinking, that's really so 21st century, you know? And say, again, I've gotten notes, you know, before, or phone calls that said, tomorrow at such and such a time, someone is having surgery, so why don't you sit in prayer for that period of time? They didn't say sit in prayer together while you have logged on to Zoom, and you log on to Zoom, and there the whole, the whole at the appointed time you sign in, you log into Zoom, and here is 20 or 25 small boxes on my computer screen with my picture in one of them and my name and 25 other people in there. And the moderator, who's in box number one, who gets on and says a few things about we're all sitting together. So everybody got that email early yesterday morning, and two or three hours later, there, there were 100 people on that call. You can put out an email. 
I thought about it. I don't know if I have a hundred people to alert, but my friend is very friendly. Uh, <laughs> the thing about those hundred people is that they all think that they're her best friend. So that <laughs> at her birthday party, which was maybe seventy-five, and a great, great many people were in some in the synagogue where she teaches. Her daughter said to the group, how many people think they're her best friend? So everybody thought, how many people know the secret code to her apartment in Manhattan? And they all put up their hand, you know, a secret code of somebody's apartment on the Upper West Side. Ah, she got a lot of friends. Anyway, so they say, and now we'll sit together. And I was thinking, I don't even know what to think about this. What has, what has God wrought, because here we come God again, is a way of saying, this is amazing. I'm amazed. In the middle of I'm worried about Rachel, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that she has that many friends. I'm amazed that they all cancel their day to be able to sit quietly looking at each other on a computer screen for a half hour. <laughs> Nobody talked. We just sat there, all of us. Eyes open, eyes closed. I know a lot of the people in the picture. And I felt very accompanied by them. I thought, that's really, that's really a thing about this. It's amazing. You don't have to be alone. You can look at all these people. You can talk to each other. And then at the end, uh, the moderator said, I'm unmuting you so everybody can talk to each other. And everybody, it was a big hubbub. I didn't stay long because I... <laughs> I, I just needed not, not to go, but... The point of telling you that whole story, it has about six points. One of them, though, is you never know. Uh, people have been saying it's a miracle. It's not a miracle. It's just a piece of contingent truth that she was not in the middle of sitting by herself in an isolated cabin in Costa Rica, which she was five days ago, that she came back and then got the headache. And it's also a wonderful thing that she's not 6,000 miles away on a, on a trip abroad with her family, which she would have been uh, when this happened. But she was, in fact, in New York with probably the best medical care or as good as any place in the whole world. And all of her friends around to run and take care of her. So you think, wow, it could have been otherwise, but it wasn't. Everything is contingent. I think about, I, I once had a... Uh, a poster on the wall. I don't remember what it was part of, but it said, um, expect a miracle. But there's a way in which everything is a miracle. You know, it could have... It's a miracle that, that, that everything was there. It's a miracle that we hear. The miracle is that so far none of us was in a fatal accident. And we communally lived, a, made a lot of journeys and crossed a lot of streets and took a lot of flights. And nobody crashed anywhere so far, all these people. And a lot of us of venerable age. Imagine all the intersections we passed. So you think about, I thought about it sometimes. Is that poem by Jane Kenyon, thank you. <laughs> Who was the Jane Kenyon? There you are. <laughs> it's called Otherwise. It could have been otherwise. It could have been otherwise, but it wasn't. Sometimes 
it is otherwise, you know. I, my husband did get sick in France, but that had its own miracles. He wasn't here near all his medical care, but they had really wonderful medical care. Sometimes it's not wonderful, so it's otherwise. But the point of the whole thing is you never really know. And if we really knew those three things that Stephen said that in this book, I think it's part of some particular Buddhist lineage mourning practice to say, I'm mortal and therefore I'm going to die sometime. I just don't know when. Therefore, what should I do today? What does that mean to you? That What does that make you feel bad or good? or Is that helpful? Or If you thought that every morning, what would you think? I would think, for instance, that I certainly, if I had any grudges, I would want to fix them right then. I don't have to be at the finish line when I'm cleaning up my grudges. You know, I don't need to carry them around today. I could be a little nicer today. I could say hello to more people in passing. Talk to the person behind me in line in the supermarket. I mean, what would I do if I didn't have a tomorrow? I'd tell a few more people that I love them. That's the only thing I could possibly forget to do. You know, everything else. <laughs> if I forgot it, somebody else would fix it up afterwards. Is that a creepy kind of reflection? You know, I'm thinking about all my friends. I'm kind of wishing I could catapult myself into New York, but I think I'm, you know, I might actually not catapult myself. I might actually take a flight. <laughs> might actually take a flight, but um, but I'm thinking about my experience and yours too. And I know some of you are physicians. You walk down a, a, a hallway in a in a hospital, especially if you walk down intensive care two intensive care and then the post-intensive care. And in, in many cases, you look in a door and you see a person in a bed, and then you see a person, people grouped around the bed, and you realize that you don't know who's in the bed and who are those people, but you know that who's in the bed is sick and the people around, that sick person is important to them. And they feel like you feel on your way to visit your sick people, person who's in a bed, and they want their person to get better the same way that you want your person to get better. When, when, when I was in uh, France for the several weeks that my husband was in intensive care, you couldn't just go and visit any old time. They had visiting hours that were from something like four to six at night. And you just couldn't get in there. It was a locked ward, that whole intensive care. And they had all the separate rooms for people but you had to go in. So you had to wait outside until 4 o'clock. And if you go day after day and you're there a couple of weeks, you see the same people coming every day. And then you see somebody is not there one day. You wonder if that person got better or didn't survive. Because either you get better out of there and you go to another floor or you don't survive. And you don't say anything. Nobody talks to each other there. Even a family comes together and they sit together. And 
But it's a very serious time, and there's a kind of a kinship because you know that we're all here around somebody who's really sick. And uh, there's a—I don't know—I I felt supported by the people. Maybe they start to nod to you after a while. Nobody talks. They nod to say, I recognize you from yesterday or the day before. It's a very, by the way, extraordinary medical system. I'm, I'm just visualizing it. You walk in at 4 o'clock, and there's, it's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a ample-sized room with um, lockers, like gym lockers. And you... Uh, Put all the stuff you're carrying, your purse, your books, your bags, your belongings, your outer coat, your gloves, everything except the clothes that are just on you, into a locker and lock it. And there's a sink. And then you wash your hands. You roll up your sleeves. You wash your hands. And they take a lot, a lot of care with... with um, be happy about that. Everybody was very scrupulous about that very low rate of hospital infections. I wanted to talk about this whole thing was about contingency and vulnerability. Because I think for myself, if I know it's all contingent, that I might never see you again. Maybe I'd look at you a little bit more carefully or I wouldn't be preoccupied with my own stuff. Maybe I'd want to make sure to say hello to you while we were together. A lot of times, see, I get on a plane and you sit down, you have some work to do. I used to be more interested in having long conversations on planes with people. Planes are uncomfortable these days and I don't fly that much anymore. But then sometimes if I'm not saying anything to a person and a half a flight has gone by, I look, I look, I try to say something. I mean, if they look like they're open to it, like you're doing all right or you feel okay or are you going home? To notice that they're there. When you notice that a person is there and you say something to them and they say something back, then that connection happens. And I think those connections are what keeps us feeling that we share this life. And that it really depends on everybody else. That contingency. Reading about it is because uh, Stephen Batchelor is using it in the same context as um, um, anatta, which is one of the three um, insights that the Buddha said was important to have that nothing is separate from anything else. We all go home to different houses. We have different clothings and different bodies. But we share a common humanity. We are part of that um, crop of people that's growing at this point on the earth. It's like we say, this is this year's crop of grapes, this is this year's crop of apples. This, we are this periods crop of people going through the world and we you know we breathe the same air we we till communal soil how we vote all of us as a as a body makes a difference in the world 
and each life pops up and ends in its own time, but not apart from everybody else. There was a, a, a Scotch philosopher, his name was uh, MacDonald, if I'm remembering correctly. A friend of mine wrote her doctoral thesis on him. And uh, his philosophy was based on the idea that uh, we get past person to person through this life. And uh, he uses the image, we, somebody's hands catch us as we come into this world. And at some point, somebody's hands do whatever they need to do to bury us or cremate us or do whatever you do with a dead person. He said, in between, we get passed from hand to hand. And the way I sometimes see that is an image. Uh, when I walk down a corridor in, a, in an airport, I, if you, this happens to you as well, I'm sure. Walk down an airport, uh, you see often there's a parent, uh, you see, here's a parent, and there's a child who's probably two or three. So they locomote, they walk on their own, but you don't leave them unheld in an airport. So your hand, the parent's hand is down and the child's hand is up because they're holding on. Two-year-old. And at some point, you see people who are the same size, you know, adults, maybe couples walking along and holding hands, more or less the same size. Then you see old people who are being held up or steered along by younger people who they probably who they probably were steering through an airport 50 or 60 years ago that person is now steering them through the airport and holding their hand so the hand moves from here from here to here to here holding somebody up and I keep thinking that that's how it is. That it's this crop of babies and this crop of young kids and this crop of teenagers. And uh, I am now in the crop of uh, 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 women over 80 <laughs> who are moving along. <laughs> but you just cycle through. And with everybody, not apart. Not apart, not alone. We're doing this with everybody. The scenes at the, at the bedsides is doing it with everybody. One, one, one of the uh, people who was responding yesterday, oh, maybe the person who led that call, said, I've, you know, I, I've, I've printed out a, a, a notice, one of the many notices I'm going to give to Rachel when she wakes up, of how many people were together thinking about her. It's the same thing of saying, you know, there were 100 people in your hospital room all huddled around your bed. So we were huddled around in cyberspace while she was in the operating room. That's only two of the three topics. Who was going to say something? Go ahead.
Thank you very much. Tell me your name again. Jackie. Jackie. You know what? I'm not even going to tell you <laughs> category three that I'm thinking about because uh, uh, they're always the same category. How to, how to steer your way through bewilderment. No, actually, I'll give you a hint. The third category was called, is losing, it's, a, it's in this week's New Yorker, and it's an article called Losing Streak. Uh, but, and he talks about, oh, she talks about in her family that she's very absent-minded. I'm also absent-minded. In my family, people tease me because I'll go around saying, I can't find my glasses. I can't find my glasses. Where are, anybody see where I put my glasses? And uh, uh, someone, my, no, only my husband teases in this way. He said, the glasses are on your head, O queen of mindfulness. But nobody else could get away with that. <laughs> nobody else could get away with that. But <laughs> absent-minded does not have to do anything with mindfulness. <laughs> But here's an article where it says, over a lifetime we will lose 200, some 200,000 items apiece, plus money, relationship, elections, and loved ones. And it's a whole article. I didn't even finish the whole article. I'll finish it. But about, it's all about accommodating to the fact that it's all about losing. This is a, everything is impermanent, including us, as we cycle through and that we all have to get used to all the time. Our pets die, our grandparents die. That would be like an order that's acceptable, the goldfish and the pet and the grandparents. But sometimes the parents before the grandparents, sometimes people die out of order, the siblings. It's all getting used to loss. And somehow the truth of vulnerability, we don't so much want to see it. But I think if we see it, we get to be kinder people. And things get to be more precious. I would really like, we have one minute left. That's not enough time. But remember in the beginning of the time I said, talk to your neighbor for a minute and say hello. Talk to your neighbor for a minute now. And say something about what you feel, how you are, or something else. So it's not just me that's talking. You talk a little bit to each other. I'll watch my watch and I'll tell you when to stop talking. Go.
We don't have to go home right now, but we do have to end the class right now. So may we all be as peaceful and content as we can be until we meet again. And may you be well, and may your health be well. May this world be well. And you can stay and visit. You're welcome. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.